my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about a master of the art. It's Joe D'Amato. Who? Yeah, you're talking about Jess Franco, the guy who made, like, female vampire stuff like that? No, you're talking about Lucio Fulci, the director of The Beyond. Oh, wait, no, Jean Rollin, the guy who made, like, Rape of the Vampire and all those other, like, women vampire films. No, no, no. We're talking about the guy who made hundreds and hundreds of film, most of them in the hardcore pornography field. And almost none of which are good. And we should Or point, are they? I, that's what we're going to discuss yeah. today. And we should point out that this is, out of all our episodes, one that we're going to talk about very violent and sexual stuff. Yeah, so uh, trigger warning, yeah, whatever. Yeah, just stop listening if that kind of stuff bothers you. Even though we, we kind of talk about that every week, I yeah. feel like. Yeah. So, Joe D'Amato. He's a filmmaker that I would always associate with making garbage. I think we're very interested in Joe D'Amato. Mm-hmm. I w- I've been excited all week about this episode. I watched eight Joe D'Amato movies for this episode. So basically any spare second I had this week, uh, which is a really weird frame of mind to be in for a week. I'll tell you that. But why are we interested in him since he's so bad and since nobody has reclaimed him? I don't know. I think it may be a mixture of the kind of movies that he makes and his history. Mm-hmm. Joe D'Amato is a guy that has 196 credits to his name. His real name is Aristid Massasesi. I'm probably saying that incorrectly as per usual. Aristide the Massachesi. And that his name D'Amato was actually taken from looking around the room and seeing a calendar that had like D'Amato typography on it. One of his distributors noticed that American Italian filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, they were successful. So he said, hey, let's give this guy a name like that. So he became Joe D'Amato. I mean, he really should have stuck with his other pseudonyms like Steve Benson or maybe Dick Spitfire. (laughs) Dick Spitfire. That's good. (laughs) David Hills was another one. But he's principally known as Joe D'Amato because that's what he put on the horror films that he made, which made him popular in places like North America. But in addition to doing tons of porn, he also did exploitation films in pretty much every exploitation genre. Spaghetti Westerns, softcore pornography, horror, post-apocalyptic Mad Max ripoff, Sword and Sandal. Anything that was popular, Joe D'Amato would make a copy of that. Because Mm -hmm. you'll realize very quickly that Joe D'Amato always chased the money. Mm -hmm. He got started in the industry because his father worked in the industry as well. He worked his way up the ladder as a still photographer on films like Jean Renoir, uh, The Golden Carriage. Mm -hmm. He was supposedly a still photographer as well on Jean Godard's Contempt. But he's uncredited on it. God, could you imagine Godard and D'Amato there together, like standing side by side? Two titans. <laughs> and finally, he worked his way as a cinematographer. And for a long time, that's what he did. And in the Italian film industry, if you work in a technical position long enough, eventually you'll start being a co director until you work your way up to being a director. Now, D'Amato is a guy, though, that worked as a cinematographer for the rest of his career, usually on his own pictures. Yeah, and he was known, especially in his early days. Days as, as being like the go-to guy for handheld cinematography. And in fact, when he started directing, he worked under pseudonyms because he was worried that he would stop being hired to be a cinematographer. And when he started to be a co-director, they were in real cheap jack pictures made by producers that just wanted to make a buck. He was famous as a guy with the assistance of Bruno Mattei, his editor, also famous for directing really shitty Italian movies, for taking stock footage and making movies around them. So they make cowboy pictures where like, 
like their main actor playing a ripoff of Sabata or Django would shoot it off screen and then you'd see a guy go, ooh, and fall off a building from a completely different film. I think the big turning point in his career was when he started making the Black Emmanuel series. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'll get to that in a sec. I think one of the things that interests people like us in Joe D'Amato is his movies are pure exploitation films. Because he's a guy that's always going for the buck, he wants to sell them on the basis nature. So all his films have a level of like bestiality, necrophilia, cannibalism, incest. Anything that's taboo, Joe D'Amato would go right toward it and put it on screen. Because that sells. He's the guy who gives you what you want. In a joyless fashion. In a a joyless fashion. And when I was trying to think, like, why am I interested in D'Amato? Why have I seen so many of his movies despite liking so few of them? I think some of it has to do with the fact that you genuinely don't know what you're going to get out of a Joe D'Amato movie. Like, anything could happen. That's true, yes. So There's no, like, line that he's not going to cross. So let's, perhaps as an example, use one of the movies that both Justin and I watched this week... Emmanuel in America. Uh, Joe D'Amato made a handful of Emmanuel films, all with Laura Gemser. And this series was a ripoff of the very popular exploitation film, Emmanuel. All the black Emmanuel films was Emmanuel with one M. Mm-hmm. Um, so not to be confused with the uh, one that they're ripping off. And Laura Gemser acted in the film Emmanuel II, The Joys of a Woman. And out of that, she was hired to act in many of these Emmanuel ripoff movies. And the most successful series was Black Emmanuel, in which she plays a sexy photojournalist who travels the world taking pictures of uh, the exotic mating rituals of various uh, odd people. This has often been described as a kind of sexploitation Tintin, (laughs) because she is going on adventures that are fairly uh, unconnected to each other, even in Emmanuel in America. It's just basically a bunch of stuff happens, and then the credits roll. And these Black Emmanuel movies are sort of interesting because they introduce, I guess, a common um, mode of D'Amato filmmaking, which is combining, you know, pretty glossy, sensual, softcore pornography with extreme violence. And the extreme violence will kind of come out of nowhere, and it will interact so strangely with the more sensual side of the film. The notoriety of Emmanuel in America comes from a sequence later in the film where Emmanuel is wandering through a big mansion where an orgy has broken out, as these things tend to do, and she peeks into a room, two people having sex with a video playing on a screen in front of them. And the video is essentially like the worst kind of snuff that you could see, which is seemingly like Nazis torturing a woman and like plunging uh, like red hot pokers. At one point, one of her breasts gets cut off in vivid detail on screen. And I got, so this snuff footage was pretty instantly notorious when Mm. the movie came out. And I got to tell you, it really still packs a punch. Well, it looks real. It looks real. Yeah. And it's not like they shoot it like a normal movie. They shoot it as it was handheld. Grainy. And like uh, Joe D'Amato has actually spoken that like they kicked it around to make sure that it looked as, you know, rough and dirty as possible. And it actually um, resulted in lawsuits against Joe D'Amato, not from the person you would think, though. It was from the actress in the snuff picture. She, yeah, she sued D'Amato for psychological mistreatment, mm. I guess. I mean, D'Amato claimed that everything was, you know, above board and yeah, everything the, was carefully planned. The makeup effects person on that snuff film was the guy who would go on to work with Lucio Fulci on a bunch of his famous pictures. I mean, my suspicion is that, you know, like, this stuff may have been carefully planned and it may have gone according to plan, but I think once you act in something like that, you mm. may not quite understand what you were getting into. 
Yeah. You know? Uh, and the film, Emmanuel in America, makes no attempt to demonize the snuff film. In fact, when it shows up later on in the picture, it's shown as just a propulsion into some, like, erotic drama that happens. Well, it's it's such a strange... We see two separate scenes with mm. snuff footage in yeah. them. The rest of the movie has almost nothing to do with it. It's this meandering plot. So it's called Emmanuel in America, but she doesn't... <laughs> Just like Friday the 13th, Jason Takes Manhattan. Yeah, she's only in America for maybe 15 minutes of this movie. She's wandering around New York, and then she she goes to Venice for some reason. Yeah, and mostly to just watch people have sex. Yeah, they're and... swingers, and there's this island harem that she goes to where it's like a brothel for the rich and the powerful, mm-hmm. where they can all have sex. And there are even some hardcore inserts. Yeah, uh, the version that is usually available on DVD is the hardcore version version even though theatrically and on television when the film was released it was softcore and you can definitely tell those hardcore inserts are in there uh i believe they were shot by joe damato as well because he has no compunction about like getting involved in that he's like and eh, now i got no problem but they, al- they also stick out like a sore thumb they do yeah even though that it's a film that is just a very hodgepodge of stuff i've seen some like shaky defenses of the black emmanuel films as like pro women because emmanuel in those films does treat everybody kind of like, man, like you guys are dumb and it doesn't matter. Well, I mean, one of the things that she does in all those movies is, you know, use her feminine wiles to her advantage. Uh, But come Uh, on, like, let's be honest. This is not a feminist classic. No, it is not. Especially the way everyone but Emmanuel is treated in the pictures. But this is one of the key Joe D'Amato movies. And I think it gets to the heart of what maybe I find interesting about him. Mm. It, It is this bizarre tone so much of the movie is this kind of glossy soft focus erotic movie that you would imagine watching on cable and then there's snuff footage yeah or or there's a scene of light bestiality in the film Mm -hmm. with uh, horse masturbation i mean joe damato would have light bestiality here but later on in his career he would have straight on bestiality as well i'm 100 certain yeah okay but the thing about joe damato is that when people talk about him and working with him they always, you know, speak about how fun it was on set, mm-hmm. that he moved quick and that they were always had a laugh. Laura Gemser, who played Black Emmanuel... And was in many of his films. Uh, ...had so much fun with him that she actually worked with him when he came to America as a costume designer just because she wanted to just spend more time working with Joe D'Amato. Mm. In fact, Laura Gemser who played Black Emmanuel, designed the trolls in Troll 2. Which was a Joe D'Amato-produced picture. Mm -hmm. So after those Black Emmanuel films... And they also included, like, Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, Mm -hmm. Emmanuel and the White Slave Trade. These titles should give you a hint about the bizarre mishmash that they are. Joe D'Amato went into hardcore pornography pretty quickly. Like, you would think that a career like his, that, like, as a cinematographer, he worked on, like, westerns, he worked on gothic horror films, that it would take a while before he evolved into what he would later uh, be known to do, especially in the 90s. No, he jumped right in. In fact, he was the first filmmaker to have a widely distributed hardcore pornography film, which was called Sessonero, and was made in 1980 with money that D'Amato had from another picture he had completed, he decided, oh, well, let's just do something real quick, have hardcore in it, so it's guaranteed to sell. So around this time, D'Amato had maybe four or five movies that he made in the Caribbean mm-hmm. that most of them had some hardcore footage in them. Seso Nero's like a straight-up porno. Yeah. Um, but a lot of them had the same cast, mm-hmm. you know, led by Mark Shannon, a guy with a big mustache and with really warty balls. <laughs> yep, <laughs> and you're going to see a lot of them. So I had seen years ago Porno Holocaust. That's like the famous what, what a one title. from this series. And it's the one that is so salacious 
suspicious when you hear that it's about like a mutant with a giant dick who kills people with that dick. Uh, the film is only there to disappoint. Porno Holocaust, which I have seen, is really bad. Yeah, just don't watch it. But Justin alerted me this week to Sesso Nero, mm-hmm. which he told me the plot and I was hooked. Like the plot was that Mark Shannon uh, has a disease that will require his dick to be cut off yep. at, at the hospital. So before he gets his dick cut off, he decides to go to the Caribbean and basically fuck his way through the island. But, and this sounds like fun, but, but he's but, also racked with pain the entire time. And and he's haunted by the ghost of who he thinks is his ex-wife, who may or may not have been brought on by a voodoo curse by her father. So all everything about that premise had me sold. But you should have known, Will. You should have known. Well, I should have known because I have seen Porno Holocaust. <laughs> yeah. This movie is even worse than Porno Holocaust. It is so just dank and ugly and hateful in in both its style and its spirit mm-hmm. like mark shannon in this film is one of the worst characters i've ever seen in a movie mm-hmm. just a dreadful person and you know the movie is it's not a lot of fun it's not very sexy nobody looks like they're having a good time but according to the interview i saw with joe damato the movie made waves at the time because nobody in italy had seen a porn movie this elaborate oh yeah one that it was made by someone who had made previous films. And had they weren't story. stag films or stuff yeah. like that. And the only one that would climax was the main character cutting off his own dick on screen. I think right around this time, maybe we should talk about a Joe D'Amato movie we liked. Because people are listening to this and they're thinking... Like, why would you watch these movies? Why, yeah, why would you put yourself through this awful man? So, uh, when Joe D'Amato is talked about, it's mostly a few films. The principal one is Buyo Omega, also known as Beyond the Darkness. It was made in 1979 and was in the period where he made gore films, because that's what was selling at the time. So, Buyo Omega is actually a remake of a 1966 film called The Third Eye, mm-hmm. about a man dealing with the law of his loved one and what does he do with the feelings that he has but Joe D'Amato just takes it to the craziest extreme it's basically an Ed Gein story it's mm-hmm. like this guy's is it his wife um, uh, I think it's just his lover yeah his lover anyway she dies and is buried and he's dominated at his home by this matriarchal figure I don't think she's actually his mother no she's not his Al- mother passed away although it, it would have been his mother probably if D'Amato had his way had yeah. his way but he's dominated by her so it's kind of a Norman and Bates by, style by, relationship by dominated we mean like she will uh, unveil her breast that he will suckle like a child <laughs> on screen so he goes a little crazy and he goes to the cemetery and he digs up his lover and then he takes her back to his laboratory to make a you know taxidermied uh, stuffed version of her lots of psycho in this lots of psycho certain unlucky women find their way to his home and are killed by him and this sounds terrible but I think it is in a certain way in a certain way but this is also like the perfect harnessing of Joe D'Amato's diseased hateful worldview into a really powerful horror movie I think it would be a disservice to D'Amato not to consider him as a good cinematographer and I think that's very important in the films that he made Mm. because a film like Beyond the Darkness is helped immensely with the kind of cold calculating style he brings to the way that he set up scenes Mm. or he lets the camera track on a dolly just showing this information especially in Beyond the Darkness where it's almost a procedural as you see the guy go through these things like imagine that scene in Psycho where uh, Norman Bates has to toss the body in the lake yeah. and you follow him but imagine that stretched over 90 minutes as <laughs> yeah. you follow this one guy yeah. and that these scenes are punctuated with him like cutting open the woman and pulling all of her guts out just in complete silence yeah. and that's why the film is so powerful and the movie also has a sense of humor yes it does it has a very kind of dark 
blackly comic sense of humor and it almost feels like there's no relief from the madness Mm -hmm. like you don't have a point of identification character yeah there's no good person so i think at his best joe damato's movies they feel genuinely transgressive Mm -hmm. and they they feel like you're in this really twisted state of mind and this really weird hateful world and we'd be remiss not to point out that Beyond the Darkness has an, a really good goblin score. Oh, yeah, yeah. That really propels what's happening on screen. And that we almost forgot to mention that the Emmanuel series has an amazing score as well. I have several of the Emmanuel soundtracks on vinyl. Because, like, listen out of context, it's just really, really good music that's, yeah. like, funky and has a beat. The kind of stuff you want to put on your earphones and just, like, walk around downtown listening to. I, I was listening to the Emmanuel in America theme song all week. <laughs> so was I. <laughs> I had it on my uh, podcast. So I just listened to it. So Beyond the Darkness, while a good movie, was still surrounded by crap, pretty much. Like, the other film that Joe D'Amato is known for is a film that in America was released as The Grim Reaper, but is also called a title I have a lot of difficulty pronouncing. I think I can do it. Anthropophagus. Yeah, Anthropophagus. And this movie is famous for two reasons. The first one is... Right there on the cover. The cover has a picture of the monster in the movie uh, pulling out his own intestines mm. and eating them. And the other reason, and I'm, I'm going to ask you, listener, to just hold tight because I'm going to say something really bothersome. Yep. It's really ugly, but this is the reason it's famous. There is a scene where there's a pregnant woman and the monster attacks her and pulls out the fetus and eats it. Yes. So that's terrible. It's not very convincing when you see it. It's a skin rabbit that's huge yes that the actor just takes a bite out of like the idea of it is gross and its execution is very lackadaisical and the rest of the movie is boring boring. so boring boring it stars Tisa Farrow who is Mia's sister and is a dead ringer for her. That Joe D'Amato said was driving a cab at that time in New York. Yikes. And a bunch of other no-name actors, mostly uh, Joe D'Amato company players. But the monster, we should point out, is played by a man whose pseudonym was George Eastman. He was a super tall guy. And if you are a aficionado of Italian films, you know this guy because mm-hmm. he's in everything. And this guy, George Eastman, was like Joe D'Amato's right hand for a long time acting screenwriting producing co-directing and if you listen to interviews with him concerning D'Amato's work you quickly get an image of why D'Amato was so depressed with the work that he was doing because even his best pal at the time has nothing but shitty stuff to say about D'Amato at one point stating in a doc that D'Amato never crafted one good looking image which is not true it's a complete lie not true but that's the way that Italy would talk about D'Amato or genre fans when he was releasing these films. Well, let's talk about another movie that he made that I think we would both say is good. Yes. And that's Death Smiles on a Murderer. The first film that D'Amato would give his actual Italian name to as the director because he has said in interviews he was very proud of the way the picture came out. This film stars Klaus Kinski and it stars is a shaky yeah, word. he's in it for 10 minutes like he is in any movie. Yeah, as D'Amato said, he showed up for two days, he was a monster and then he went on his way. <laughs> uh, and the actual star is the woman who starred in Candy. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember her name. Like it's kind of a Mario Bava-ish. Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. So we, the story could be that it starts as far as we can understand a woman is in a carriage 
accident. She gets picked up by people that live in a castle. She has amnesia. And all these people are falling in love with her and being driven mad by the lust that they feel for her. While also the ghost of her brother, seemingly, Mm -hmm. is haunting people within uh, the castle and murdering them. Or is it? It's a giallo story, essentially, with a lot of POV killer shots, murdering people in brutal ways. And this, very brutal. And this is the movie where D'Amato lets out all the stops with his style. Like, there's a really weird scene, the shot with a fisheye lands. There's a lot of rapid cross-cutting. It's very well-constructed. If you want an analog, you could think of, like, Nick Rogue, the kind of stuff that he would do. It's very much within that style. It's got a really cool atonal musical score Mm -hmm. that sometimes sounds a bit like Ennio Morricone. But works very well with the way the pictures are presented. Like, this is a film that D'Amato, like, probably from a script writing all the way to the editing stage, was right beside it to make sure that it was molded in a way that would represent the vision that he had. And as with all the best D'Amato movies, everything's just a little bit off kilter. Yes. You feel like you're not secure while mm-hmm. watching it and that anything can happen. And it's also mean-spirited. Yes. Because like anyone could die or something horrible could happen to them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this movie came out, probably had a lukewarm response, and that D'Amato went, well, fuck, why do I have to try to do anything? Because if I try my hardest, this film feels like a first-time filmmaker putting it all on the line. And if nobody cares, then, okay, let me just continue and do this with the people that I know and that I enjoy working with and just try to make money. So in the early 80s, after uh, the blockbuster success of Sesso Nero, I don't know if it was a blockbuster. No. uh, No. But he kind of descended into hardcore pornography and... From the people who have seen most of these movies, they say that the vim and vigor that was present in Sesso Nero quickly dissipates, which is unfathomable to me. Sesso Nero is so bad. And every now and then, he would take like a little swing at trying to make like a narrative, non-hardcore film. For a while, he went into America and he shot a bunch of horror films. That's what Troll 2 came out of. Mm. And he also went into more like fun genre pictures. I use fun very loosely by making a bunch of sword and sandal films because that was popular at the well, time. Well, he had a few successes and he was able to start his own production company in the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. One of his most famous series of films is the Ator series starring Miles O'Keefe, you know, Conan the Barbarian ripoffs. If you're a Mystery Science Theater fan, you've seen Ator the Blade Master under another title, Cave Dwellers. Yeah, exactly. He also did some Mad Max post-apocalyptic movies, including one that we both watched this week called Endgame. I mean, there's not much to discuss about Endgame because it is just like a Mad Max ripoff, but it's one that's very competently made, moves very quick, has a bunch of dumb action, and is Joe D'Amato's, according to him, favorite film that he's put together. Really? Well, I mean, it's got a lot of fun stuff yeah, in it. It's, it's real dumb. It's very dumb. It's, it's It's got, you know, cool costumes and stuff. I mean, I just wish it weren't so joyless. Uh, I think that it does have joy in it. And I think that the main guy played by Al Cliver, who's like a deadpan, <laughs> like has no emotion Did face. Did nothing for me. <laughs> I, I thought he was so much fun because he felt like the burnt out gladiator that he's supposed to be. This is a film that starts with a 30 minute ripoff of The Running Man before getting bored with that premise and then just turning into like a stagecoach style across the apocalyptic wasteland adventure story. Shot on, you know, abandoned warehouses Mm -hmm. and, you know, desolate landscapes. But there's some fun ideas 
ideas. Like yeah. uh, at one point, they find a village that's just filled with blind monks in long hoodies, you know, that which is very close to my own creative sensibilities <laughs> that just come at them in waves of uncontrollable madness. And the only way to kill them all is to go find the psychic that they're using that is giving them uh, sight. Mm. So like that stuff is fun. And he's with a team of like, there's a Viking dude. There's a very racist ninja character. Yeah. That's the kind of competency that I wish appeared more in Joe D'Amato's work. If I were recommending something for listeners who maybe want to s- stick a toe into yeah. the shallow end of the Joe D'Amato pool, I might say Endgame. Does it have Laura Gemser being sexually assaulted by a lizard man? Yes, it does. Okay, yeah, you gotta be afraid of that. But, but Joe D'Amato, his filmography does have a nut, like 2% that you could recommend to someone <laughs> and that they would watch and go, oh wow, this seems like an interesting director. What else has he done? But then the rest of his filmography has just lots of interesting detours, stuff mm-hmm. that may not actually be good, but it's just interesting that it exists. So yeah. for example, a movie that we didn't watch this week, but that I'm still kind of curious about, Caligula 2, The Untold Story. Yeah, which was inspired by the hit film Caligula <laughs> by Tinto Brass. And by all accounts was an attempt to kind of outgross, mm-hmm. um, and by, by which I mean out-disgust the yeah. original Caligula. So it's got a lot of hardcore stuff. It's got a lot of gore and stuff. I, I am curious about it. I may and check it out sometime. Throughout his career, he was just chasing trends. Like, uh, in the book I have, yes, there is a book written about Joe D'Amato in French. The author actually breaks it up into specific sections. So, like, Joe D'Amato had his Mondo era. He had his Western era. He had his Gore era. He had his Sword and Sandal. His sci-fi. Like, it's just whatever was popular, Joe D'Amato would make it. And eventually, the money just kind of ran out. Well, he was able to rise out of hardcore in the mid-80s because he had some success. And he had his company, Film Mirage, Mm -hmm. and he was making a lot of softcore erotic movies that he was hoping to sell to TV. (laughs) The most successful one of them, I think, was a movie that I watched this week called 11 Days, 11 Nights, which is just a straight up nine and a half weeks ripoff. Uh, Everyone's favorite Mickey Rourke film. (laughs) (laughs) And it's about a, uh, a woman who's writing a book about my 100 men, and most of the 100 men are public figures, but the last one is just going to be a random guy off the street. And she picks this man who's about to be married in 11 days to start an affair with. Does she get in too deep with them? Who knows? Do they they fall in love? Does she do a lot of uh, crazy games and mind tricks and stuff with him? Uh, You'll have to see it to find out. (laughs) This is a movie that, you know, like most Italian movies that are pretending to be American, it's Mm -hmm. a little awkward. Uh, It's shot in New Orleans, uh, shot very cheaply in New Orleans. You know, the movie's shot on 35 mil. Otherwise, it doesn't look very good. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I was watching this thinking, think how bad this would look if it were shot on digital. Because yeah. it's badly lit. Mm-hmm. You know, D'Amato shows kind of no imagination for how to shoot New Orleans. All it has to recommend in it is the lead actress, Jessica Moore, a pneumatic beauty. Yeah, okay. Um, that's, a, that's a nice way to put it. Yes. Who, you know... Uh, I'm a man of flesh and blood. <laughs> yeah, okay. I <laughs> seem to have been uh, describing that film as if you'd recommend it to people. You know, maybe I would. No, you I, wouldn't. Because, because, you know, I, it's a movie that has, like, nothing good about it. Yeah. Except prurient interest. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, and after that, like, 80s period, he did just go into shooting hardcore on video. It's because he made too many softcore movies that didn't have enough sex in them mm-hmm. and that nobody wanted to buy. So he got deeply into debt and he had to get out of debt. And so he just started grinding out porn. And it's funny that you read about this pornography. Sometimes 
he would make a film like Caligula and then he would make shittier versions of that same movie with hardcore pornography in it. So off of this giant set that he built, he'd have three or four other smaller <laughs> films that he could get then also sell almost at the same price. I'm a little bit curious about the Marquis de Sade biopic he made in the 90s with uh, Rocco Sifredi. Oof, I'm sure it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. If you look at his filmography on IMDb, it's obvious that he stumbled into historical sets that he could use, either that he built himself or were used for other films that he could shoot four, five, ten pornos all in a quick succession. A lot of Western pornos in there. We watched a documentary called Joe D'Amato Totally Uncut, which is his De Palma, Mm -hmm. you know. It's him talking about all the movies. He has a pretty low opinion about most of them, but he's one of those exploitation guys where he clearly had more pride in his work than he let on. Yes. So once he starts talking about the porn era, like all the color goes out of his face. He, he just, he's very down on it. He's a guy that like starts talking about sexuality in his films with eroticism is watching something out of the corner of your eye and not seeing all of it. That's what really excites me. And then you consider that Joe D'Amato would go on to make just hardcore pornography where nothing excited him because that's the only thing that he could sell. He says something in the documentary on the lines of, you know, some directors say they can get messages in their films, but really this is just about buttholes. Yeah, it's about dicks going in and out of buttholes. That's all that my films are at the end of the day. I'd be remiss not to mention that there is a filmmaker that worked with D'Amato and actually thanks to Mato for the career as short as it may have been that he had and that's Mikel Suavi the director of Cemetery Man mm. and The Sect he worked as D'Amato's assistant uh, director on a bunch of pictures before going to work with Argento including like Endgame Gladiators and stuff like that like he didn't work on the hardcore porn stuff but the more legitimate stuff but D'Amato actually funded uh, Mikel Suavi's first film Stage Fright mm. the famous slasher which is the owl-headed killer which you can pick up on Blu-ray and is an amazing film now D'Amato Motto died in 1999, and in that last decade, it's mostly porn, but I think there are maybe five or six legitimate above-ground films. Maybe maybe less than that, honestly. Yeah, but. I discovered right before Will came to record this podcast that in 1999, the year that he died, he directed this big pirate opus that in the Totally Uncut doc is called Tortuga, but it actually goes under like three or four other titles, including mm-hmm. Sexy Pirates. Mm-hmm. And this was like his attempt to make a big adventure film. But even in the doc, he talks about how because he'd made so many hardcore pornographies, he's kind of fallen into certain traits that is that makes him complacent in some of the ways that he shoots stuff. Mm-hmm. He talks in the doc that he's got to work on that. Unfortunately, he would die that year that the movie would be released. And even in that doc, he says he made the big pirate picture and then he made four pornos on that set to pay for the boat that he had in the film. So he died, you know, and uh, what more can you say about the guy? Yeah, he died shooting pretty much. He, he actually, I think, d- did die on the set of one of his films, did he? didn't he? That's crazy. I don't know. I, I, I might have to verify that. And, you know, at the end of his career, he talked about how he would go to conventions in North America and that people would pay for his autograph. And that just baffled him. Mm-hmm. In Totally Uncut, he says, why don't they just buy a T-shirt or something that's more useful? Why do they want my autograph? Which is unfortunate that even at the end of the, his life, 
he felt that no one valued his work in any kind of way. So summing up, last week we said that this is a guy who, you know, most of these Italian exploitation filmmakers had been reclaimed somehow. Mm -hmm. Back in the 70s, you had to go to a grindhouse to see these movies. Yes. So now that we can watch them on Blu-rays, contextualized, beautifully restored, we can see the talent that was actually there. And and that doesn't seem to have happened to Joe. And we were going to say, are we going to be able to, to do this for him? Having watched eight of his movies this week and having watched a bunch of his movies before this week, mm-hmm. um, partly the defense for him is irrational. Like, you have to defend him partly on the grounds of just the fact of his career and all the different facets his career covered and the different kinds of kinds of things he did. But if I were to do a more rational defense for him, it would be it would come back to that off-kilter tone and that expect the unexpected quality and, and the fact that you never knew quite what you were going to get from a D'Amato movie. I think that, and this has been underlined watching the movies this week, is that Joe D'Amato was a man that had the potential to be greater than he was, and that you see inklings of that in his work, and that unfortunately it was just beaten down out of him as his career progressed, and that because his career is so friggin' voluminous, and he was so prolific, any kind of value he may have had is impossible to find pretty much. And that's what's interesting. I mean, about I, th- it. I think it's possible to find. You could find yeah. it in. Yeah, you can, well, beyond the darkness and but, like. But I think you could find it in Emmanuel in America. Mm. It's like, I wouldn't call it a good movie, but there's nothing like it. Like, you know? I was worried when I got that book on Joe D'Amato that the writer would take this very hyperbolic defense of his work, and he does it, which I think is the way that you have to approach this filmmaker. Otherwise, you will alienate anyone yeah. that wants to get into him. There are a couple of good movies, but there are a lot of movies that you watch them and you say, well, I've never seen anything like that. And that has value. <laughs> yes. Okay, so letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And the first one as a subject, long time, first time from Lumbini, Nepal. Ooh, a writer from Nepal. Greetings, Important Cinema Club. Now that I've gotten your attention, I regret to inform you that I'm not a native Nepali listener. Oh. <laughs> but rather an American volunteer teaching in Lumbani, Buddha's birthplace. I'm sure this comes as a disappointment to Justin, who must have been looking at those download statistics, wondering about the identity of that one Nawari cinephile. I'm just glad that we can pay tribute to Buddha with this episode about <laughs> Joe D'Amato. <laughs> anyway, I'm discretting. Your podcast one of the highlights of my week. I discovered it through Will's excellent Michael and Us and quickly became a dedicated fan. In fact, I don't listen to Michael us and us at all anymore that is not written in this i just added that you added that <laughs> if somebody asks for a podcast wreck i point to you guys though mostly because i'm almost certain they haven't heard of you i've never ouch hey. <laughs> i've never really build been... us up and then break us down <laughs> i've never really been a film person but you guys engage with some material in a way that makes me want to become one or at least experience the stuff you talk about for myself hmm. in many ways i'm glad i don't have much experience with film because when you do cover something i'm familiar with I often find myself frustrated that you don't focus on the things I consider the best parts. A common criticism we've heard. Give me some specifics. (laughs) For instance... Take your Stephen Chow episode. I've been a chowder head since I watched <laughs> Kung Fu Hustle in a friend's basement, and I feel that you greatly shortchanged God of Cookery in your analysis. In addition, Chow's trenchant insights into the cutthroat nature of Hong Kong capitalism, God of Cookery has an incredible series of 18 bronzemen gags, and a climax so insane that it left me and my housemates speechless when we watched it. It's my personal favorite of his films, though I haven't seen The Mermaid one yet. I don't remember very much about what I said about God of Cookery, but... I did watch it for that episode, and I remember feeling underwhelmed. 
I mean, I believe what he says. You yeah. Know? And I remember that the climax is great, but it doesn't deliver that rapid fire chow base gag level well, that I, his I, other films do. Yeah, I think we were kind of looking at it through the prism of, you know, Kung Fu Hustle and Shaolin Soccer. Mm-hmm. I think we kind of regard it as like the transition film to what those movies are. For that Stephen Chow episode, if you go to the film trap page of it, I actually gave like a top 10 list, I believe, mm-hmm. and that there's some really fun ones that you should check out there. God of Cookery is the one, though, like you said, that like after you see Kung Fu Hustle, after you see Shaolin Soccer, is the one that people go to. Mm-hmm. But in the body of his work, I feel it is a little bit more minor for me. I mean, this letter writer obviously uh, finds it hilarious throughout. I think it's good. Yeah, it's good. Regardless of how I feel about the subject you cover, you two are always a joy to listen to. Oh, oh man, he's buttering us up again. <laughs> you clearly have a love of cinema that only deepens with each episode you do. I'm currently making a grand total of zero dollars a year, but the moment I have some income, I can ensure you'll become a Patreon subscriber. Well, Ooh, man. nice save there. But I hope you, like, get food for yourself first. <laughs> now that I've buttered you up, I was wondering if you could give me a behind-the-music-style look at the making of the important cinema club. Please forgive the coming barrage of technical questions. So I'll just go through these real fast, and I'll answer them as they come up. What do you guys use to record? We use a Blue Yeti microphone. You can get them on like Amazon or other electronic distributors for $120 to $140. It's a good microphone because you only need one of them and there's a mic on each side. So if you sit on both sides of it, the levels are close enough that if you compress it when you do the editing, you'll sound on the same level. What software do you use? I use Audacity. It's free software. It's super easy to use. And I also use Adobe Premiere Pro, which is a video editing software, but has a little bit more um, flexibility after I've edited the episodes. So I go through it and basically just edit out any uhs and ahs and try to remove the repetition of words that me and Will tend to do. And that once I have it in like a more concise form, I bring it to Adobe Premiere Pro because the tool that I've used since I was a teenager and I lay it down with like musical sound effects and stuff like that. But you don't need to use Adobe Premiere Pro. Will edits Michael and us only in Audacity, right? That's right. And you use clips and stuff like that that you put throughout the episode. So Audacity can be your be-all, end-all tool. How much do you tend to cut and why do you cut it? Uh, I pretty much answered that question. Um, You know, we cut Justin when he goes on a rant about the international banking (laughs) conspiracy. (laughs) Yeah, other than that, uh, (laughs) it's usually us, ahs, and silence where sometimes we have to take a moment to consider where we're going to go next. But or we have to be like, uh, how do you pronounce that person's name? Yeah, but other than that, um, we don't usually like have big breaks in our recording and that it is just kind of stream of consciousness in the way that we do it. Do you have a general target length? No, never. We never set a length to what we talk about. We just run out of gas when <laughs> yeah. we run out of gas. <laughs> and how much do your, does your week usually go into the production and preparation of the podcast? Uh, uh, fo- too much, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I try, and this is ridiculous, to watch one movie based on the filmmaker a day up until the podcast that doesn't usually, you know, yeah. play out. I don't always do that much, although as I said I watched eight Joe D'Amato movies this week so a lot of time went into this episode. And the baseline for <laughs> recording after doing 100 episodes is basically it's going to take twice the time of the episode to edit. So if it's a 45 minute episode it'll probably take me about 90 minutes to edit and to have a version that I can release on the internet. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that's changed in terms of technical production since the start of the show? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> Nothing has changed. You know, we could get two microphones, but it sounds fine. Yeah. And uh, it's much easier to edit with just one microphone. Yeah. I'm an amateur audio editor and an aspiring podcaster myself, so any advice you might have would be appreciated. 
If you ever notice that a deep dive podcast into the 80s cash grab, the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, has ripped off your format, that's probably because it has. Thanks for all the laughs. Forever mourning Jerry Lewis, Zeke <laughs> Mabin. P.S. How in the hell did you find a subversion of getting any? I convinced my roommate to let me screen it one night after your Takashi Kitano episode, only to be unable to find it. It's actually been released multiple times on DVD and Blu-ray, even recently. There's a new UK Blu-ray of it. I mean, as you say, you have zero dollars, so I wouldn't necessarily advise buying it. But But it has been released with subtitles, and we highly recommend it. It's a great film. So thanks again for the letter. You can send us stuff at importcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And if I didn't respond to your letter, I shall do so by email. But that was a really long one, so it eats up a lot of time. He also asked for a little bit of extra um, advice for podcasting, and I would say be a cool guy with a, <laughs> with a fun personality that people like to spend time with and have a good friend like Justin. Oh, wait, so you're the cool guy. I thought you were going to be like, and then have someone like me, Will, to talk to. I, I mean, I think we're both cool guys. <laughs> yeah, we're both per- cool guys. Fun personalities that people want to be imaginary friends with. I mean, when I say hello, my name's Dustin the Clue, uh, and Will says his name we both like lock in the predator handlock every time that's right so if you hear a little that's what's happening (laughs) and if you are an aspiring podcaster my one recommendation is just do it yeah like no one's gonna listen (laughs) for most of it so there's no reason that you just don't go and record it and the great thing is you can just put it out there yeah and either people listen to it or they don't doesn't really matter in the end of the day so this week on our Patreon, we decided to talk about a, a big Disney animated film that we thought it was time for us to have a discussion oh, which about. which one? Was it Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? Uh, was it Dumbo? Was it Lady and the Tramp? <laughs> no. Or was it Max Keeble's big move? <laughs> <laughs> no, we talked about Song of the South. Yes. The famous film that has never been released in North America on home video, but has been released multiple other places. And is not hard to find. No, it's not. So... Uh, you can be a Patreon subscriber. It's $5 a month. If you go to Important Cinema Club and just search it in Google and write Patreon, it'll pop right up. And you get a new episode every week. And there's a huge backlog at this point of episodes that we've done. And, you know, Song of the South is just the tip of the iceberg. And as a subscriber, you will also get every other episode that comes. Who knows what they'll be about? Probably some exciting shit, right, Will? Probably, yeah. No, yes, yes. yes it'll be yes. the most exciting. Yes, it'll be great. <laughs> Next week... We're going to do something that I can't believe we've never talked about before. We're going to be talking about a filmmaker whose claim to fame is musicals. Have we never done a a musical filmmaker? I don't think we have, no. Especially not like the MGM era of musicals. Okay, well, we're going to do Vincent Minnelli. And that's the guy who made uh, Meet Me in St. Louis, An American in Paris, uh, The Bandwagon. And we're going to be watching An American in Paris, which I believe you said you never watched, right? That's right, I've never seen it. And we'll also be watching The Bad and the Beautiful, which is often discussed as one of the best films about Hollywood and stars Kirk Douglas basically playing an analog of Val Luton the producer that would produce that like block of horror pictures popularized by the cat people. Mm. And as per usual, you can follow me at J on Twitter and you can follow Will at Will Sloan ESQ. You can also follow me on Letterboxd. My username is Justin the Clue. And if you want more information about this episode, like a list of the movies that we mentioned, check out the Film Trap page for this Important Cinema Club episode at filmtrap.com, where I also put a collection of trailers of all the movies that we mentioned, in this case, about Joe D'Amato. And if you're in the Toronto area and you enjoy the Laser Blast Film Society, make sure to get your pass for the What the Film Festival. It's a film festival that me and Peter Kaplowski are putting on from March 24th and 25th with the 
uh, past, we'll be able to see all five movies, two of them being world premieres, one of them a retro from the 90s that hasn't played since then on 35mm, and make sure to check out as well the What the Film Bazaar, which is basically a convention with all the stuff that me and Peter love, and it'll be on sale there all sponsored by Arrow Films. So to get your pass and for more info, visit wtfilmfestival.com or you can get there as well by going to laserblastfilmsociety.com. Until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So this week, Justin, at the Laser Blast Film Society at the Royal, you and our friend Peter showed Stuart Gordon's film Fortress from 1992, starring Christopher Lambert, <laughs> the man whose balls are briefly visible. <laughs> are they? Yes, oh, they my are. eyes were not peeled. As we've uh, established on this episode, you have much better, like, baldar than I have when they call <laughs> up in movies. Uh, this is a film that you probably saw as a teenager if you were wandering the aisles in the 90s, because Christopher Lambert's face is right on top of it. Came in the wake of the Paul Verhoeven sci-fi films, which is, is a slightly satirical kind of of like sci-fi uh, prison escape picture starring Christopher Lambert and a murderer's row of B-movie actors doing their best on about three sets and trying to make it look like a big budget. Mm-hmm. We had the luck to be able to play it on 35mm and while it's definitely a small film, with an audience, damn did it play well. Yeah, it's a fun movie, really goofy movie. You were saying before that you really f- never felt that Stuart Gordon quite got his due. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stuart Gordon, his most famous film being Reanimator, uh, the Jeffrey Combs, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft-based gore film. But he also did Castle Freak. That's the one where a guy gets his ding-dong ripped off. No, he does not. He does <laughs> no. not get his ding-dong ripped <laughs> <Okay>. off. <laughs> uh, Stuart Gordon is a fascinating filmmaker. Let's just do a miniature episode right here about him. Sure. He started in the theater, and that's what he kind of cut his teeth on and kind of stumbled into making films. And that's why he was later able to make a David Mamet film. Mm-hmm. Because I believe he directed some of Mamet's plays in the theater. And that he kind of knocked it right out of the gate with Reanimator. And he admits without any problem that he had no idea what he was doing and that he was really helped by a cinematographer and his producer Brian Usna and at the time he was making it for Empire Pictures a company that was run by Charles Band and I think that what seemingly just from like looking at the films that came out what happened to Stuart Gordon is he kind of like stumbled into impossible situation to impossible situation where he somehow pulled off interesting films in a scenario where they could not make enough money to make him a name that he could go on to do stuff while a film like Fort Arnold Schwarzenegger was attached to make it for a long time. You know, circumstances kind of became involved and he ended up with Christopher Lambert instead. Or from Reanimator, while he did make a bunch of films for Empire Pictures, that company folded and then he ended up having to work for Full Moon Films, a director VHS distributor, where he still made great pictures like Castle Freak or (laughs) The Pit and the Pendulum. Really good that have no way to escape or to make a name for him in a way that would allow him to work in the studio system. I have to admit, I've only seen Reanimator, Edmund, Mm -hmm. and now Fortress. What is it about Stuart Gordon that's so great? I think that at its base, he's a filmmaker who treats this goofy, over-the-top material with a lot of respect. Mm -hmm. And that's really important in genre filmmaker. He's never kind of like looking aside and going, this is so dumb. Like, I can't believe that I'm making this kind of film. So I'm going to deliver the minimum effort that it needs to make it. Like, when he was making Place, he actually adapted the famous science fiction novel, The Forever War 
War as a stage play. Mm. And he actually brought that author to pen the screenplay for his big budget production, Robot Jocks, that he made. <laughs> and that was another film that got stuck in a legal mess, which never allowed it to be released properly in the way that it was supposed to which again this could have been his breakout film and instead it just went to direct a video where people liked it who saw it but you know it didn't lead to anything else like and this is if you look at his career happens over and over and over again like he made a film called space truckers which you probably remember from seeing on vhs shelves and it was a pretty big budget picture but it was again a b movie and i think because of its title and its subject matter people just kind of look down on it not realizing that he was really good at taking this kind of not shit material, but like silly material and making something that has value out of it. He was recognized when he swept the Oscars with uh, <laughs> the incredible ice cream suit starring yes. Joe Montana. <laughs> That's right. And that was because, unless I'm mistaken, he had adapted the Ray Bradbury short story as a successful stage show and then made it into a movie version where it was then dumped on VHS. But it does have an amazing trailer where it goes, starring Edward James Olmos and Edward James Olmos. <laughs> I remember actually seeing the trailer for The Incredible Ice Cream Suit when I was a kid, you know, mm -hmm. on another VHS, just being very confused by it. Like, what what the hell is this? The closest that Stuart Gordon got to studio respectability, as far as I can tell, is that he wrote the story for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And he was supposed to direct it in a more lower budget film. And he just ended up selling it to Disney to make. And then he kind of stepped back and probably took a big paycheck from it, which allowed him to go make his own movies. Well, I'm glad he got money. Yeah, I'm really glad too, even though that all the other films he made since then weren't that successful. Like, he is obsessed with H.P. Lovecraft and has been trying to make Lovecraftian films forever. Dagon is good. He was going to do an Edgar Allan Poe thing that he wanted to kickstart. Could not get enough money for I did see uh, his Edgar Alan Poe stage play, which mm -hmm. was a one-man show with uh, Jeffrey Combs as Poe. Yeah. Did you like it? Um, it, it was okay. Ah, loved it. Great. Okay. But, you know, Jeffrey Combs, the actor, owes his entire career to Stuart Gordon. Yeah. And I, I think that Stuart Gordon, if I was him, I'd just be frustrated. It's like, why do I keep making movies <laughs> if nobody cares and nobody's giving me the money to make them? This is a dude that made a successful kind of art revenge film for The Asylum out of all <laughs> the people. A film called King of the Ants mm -hmm. that came out like direct to DVD. He's a dude that made great movies in the worst circumstances and still nobody would give him a break. Do you find that inspiring in some way? No. Okay. Well, it's inspiring in the sense that, like, just because of the financial circumstances or even the producers that you're working with, you can still make a great movie. What's not inspiring is that only people like Justin DeClue will care <laughs> and that that doesn't pay the bills. Mm.